Please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 11. This morning we will be looking at verses 28 through 44. John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. This is God's word. When she, referring to Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I was reading my Twitter feed this week, and I came across a tweet from a friend, friend of mine. He obviously was sitting in a restaurant somewhere, and this is what he wrote. Dear couple who are eating lunch and making out at the giant cafe, please choose one or the other. Thank you. I was reminded of how, as I read that tweet, how uncomfortable we are when we're faced with that kind of a public display of affection, the PDA that uh, our culture still kind of frowns upon. It's amazing that even as we increasingly and vigorously deny that there are any boundaries to affection in private settings, We certainly still are pretty intolerant of public displays of affection when we have to observe it. Got me thinking, though, as I was studying this text about PDEs, public displays of emotion. 
I think in many ways our culture is almost just as uncomfortable with public displays of emotion as we are with public displays of affection. I don't know, as I compare ourselves, I've had very little experience with other cultures and societies around the world, but we seem pretty uptight. I don't know if it's our British heritage or what, but uh, we don't like overt displays of emotion. As we come to this climactic part of this powerful story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we get to witness a PDE, a public display of emotion from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Matter of fact, as you get to this section of the story, it seems that the spotlight is on what is going on inside of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his emotions. I've seen a lot of the Jesus movies, even though I have kind of a love-hate relationship with them. I don't like Jesus movies because they, by necessity, have to add so much to what Scripture reveals, and that's always extremely dangerous. But one thing that strikes me, and I think the recent ones have gotten this a little bit better, but especially the older ones, they always made Jesus so wooden. And I don't know if it's partly the bad acting, but he just seemed to be a real cold fish in terms of emotions. Spoke with a monotone all the time. Used very little facial expression. And he comes across as this iceberg, personally. And I just think that's such a misrepresentation of the scriptures. And certainly we see here the depth of his emotions. He was fully human and fully God. Actually, though, as we pick up at this point in the story, the first emotional outburst that we see isn't from Jesus. It's actually from Mary. As you remember from our earlier studies, that Lazarus, who has died, had two sisters, Martha, the older one, and Mary, the younger one. Last week, we looked at Jesus' interaction with Martha. as She came out from her home to meet Jesus as he came into town, and Jesus met with her personally, and that really becomes the highlight of this story. The focus of the story is how Jesus works to build and strengthen the faith of his disciples in this whole, this whole terrible situation of the unexpected death of Lazarus. Mary was still back at the house. Martha interacts with Jesus. She has her faith strengthened. As we said, that's really the focus. She has her faith strengthened as Jesus comes to her and says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. No matter how dire things may be, no matter how final the death may seem, I am always the resurrection and the life. And Martha confesses faith. Then Martha goes back to get Mary, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. Does raise the question, why didn't Mary go the first time? Why didn't she go with Martha out to meet with Jesus? And I'm going to be a little speculative here. I don't know for sure. But from the context and the way that the story reads, it appears that Mary was extremely emotionally distraught. That You notice that the people, and we talked last week how many people had come from the area, particularly from Jerusalem, to, to come to this time of mourning for this family. How there were so many people there at the house, nobody went with Martha when she went out to meet with Jesus. And I think it's because she comes across as kind of a strong-willed leadership type 
but everybody stays at the house with Mary. But notice what happens when Martha comes and says to Mary, Jesus wants to talk to you, and Mary leaves to go talk to Jesus. The whole crowd follows her. And it says that they're concerned about her going to weep at the tomb. They don't want her there by herself. I, I think they can see that she's distraught in her grief. As we mentioned last week, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see another emotional outburst from Mary when Jesus comes back to visit their home shortly thereafter. And Mary comes and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus and she anoints his feet with this expensive ointment and then wipes his feet with her hair. Again, just a a profound outpouring of emotion. You really get the strong sense that Mary was a very emotionally expressive woman. Well, it says, as you go to verse 32, that when she does go out to greet Jesus, she falls at his feet in a heap, in a sobbing heap at his feet. Again, a very strong expression of emotion. And it says in verse 33 that she was weeping. And the word in the original language there for weeping means to cry out loudly, to wail, to wail. That kind of weeping, the kind of weeping that we in our culture find embarrassing and uncomfortable and chaotic. But if you've ever witnessed a funeral or people grieving over the death of a loved one in the Middle Eastern culture, even today. It's a very loud and chaotic affair because in that culture, that's how you expressed your grief. And that's what was going on, both with Mary and with the other mourners. And that's what Jesus witnesses. And again, she comes to him, as she, she professes faith in Christ, but it's a limited faith. She says, Lord, if you had been here, He would not have died. If you'd been here, I trust that you have the power and the love for Lazarus. You would have healed him so he would not have to die. But you didn't come in time. So there's faith but great disappointment. And this is the scene, as I've laid out for you, that Jesus responds to. And I want to take a few moments to analyze Jesus' response because I think we can learn a lot about the heart of the Lord that we serve, of the Lord that saved us. We get a picture of his heart, his emotions in the face of the curse of death. Jesus' first reaction actually might surprise us, and that's his groaning. Look at verse 33, the second half of it. It says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's an interesting word in the Greek language. The word there for deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit. That word originally meant the snort of a horse. And it's the angry snort of a horse that it refers to. And so it later in Greek language came to be more generalized to an expression of anger or an experience of anger. It's it's an angry feeling that he has. That's what, it's not just some generic being troubled in his spirit. He was moved with anger and greatly troubled. Indignation, righteous anger. Well, what's he angry at? Well, he isn't angry at Mary or any of the other mourners for weeping like they are. He himself is going to weep in a moment, as we'll see. He's not angry at them for weeping. I think there's two possibilities. As we look at the context here and also look at the greater context of Scripture, there's two possibilities about what he's angry about. The first one is that he'd be angry 
at the weak faith or the lack of faith of many of the people there. In verse 37, it says that some of the mourners say, Could he not have, he who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? There's a bit of a cynical tone to that statement. And certainly, Jesus could well be angry at the lack of faith that that expresses. That they appear to be grieving, as Paul would later say, as those who have no hope. Makes me think of when Jesus approached Jerusalem at the end of his earthly life and says as he looked at Jerusalem and remembered all the generations upon generations of sin and apostasy and unbelief and rebellion among the Jewish people throughout the whole course of the Old Testament. And he contemplated that this city would soon be destroyed, that not one brick would stand upon another, that there would be a great loss of life under the judgment of God through the hands of the Romans. It says that he wept. I think rightly we tend to take that as a a weep of, of a grieving weeping, but I think due to the fact that he's reflecting on the unbelief and the rebellion and the rejection of his own people. I think it was a a weeping of anger as well. And then at the Last Supper, over in chapter 13, we'll see in a few weeks, as Jesus contemplated what was about to happen, it says, literally, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The same exact word. He was deeply moved in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As he contemplated one of his own twelve disciples, not believing and betraying him, he was angry. He was deeply moved in his spirit with indignation. So yes, I do think that that had to be part of it, but I don't think that was the focus of his anger in context. I think the focus of his anger is directed at that tomb. That's what you get the sense of. His anger was directed at the tomb. He was angry at death. R.C. Sproul said in his commentary, he was in the presence of of the ravaging destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind, death. I don't think we begin to contemplate how much Jesus hates death. I was thinking about this last week. A lot of the local talk and media and publicity was all about Thon. Thon's a great thing. And I was struck by it as I saw so many of the videos of children that have wrestled and battled the great battle against cancer, dressed up in bright, happy clothes and playing with toys and dancing and playing with the students. And I thought, what a wonderful scene that is. But there are also many references to children spending months upon months in pediatric wards of cancer hospitals and If you've ever been to one of those places, you walk out of them saying, I hate death. I hate cancer. I hate what it does to people. We so much insulate ourselves from death that we don't realize how much our Lord hated it with perfect, righteous indignation. I was talking to somebody from the congregation last week who had visited Washington, D.C. and had been to the Holocaust Museum. And this is the first time that they'd been there. I've never been there. But as they described it, and and their first impression was strongly of just hatred against the death and the depravity and the destruction and the meaninglessness of it all. 
we need to hate death more than we do. I sometimes wonder, you know, how our culture has, it tries to deal with death. You can't avoid death. We try to. We try to block it out. We try to, you know, keep experiences with death out of sight so that we don't have to deal with it. It wasn't like that in biblical cultures. In biblical cultures, death was a daily part of life. You were much more exposed to it. I think not only do we shelter ourselves from it, but we actually, in a weird way, and I've tried to understand this, in our entertainment, in our culture, we're kind of obsessed with it in that way, in that the violence in movies gets more and more and more graphic all the time. It doesn't ever seem to hit a peak. It doesn't ever seem to get better. It just gets worse. And you think of movies that deal not only with great violence, but with death itself. I mean, zombie movies are really popular right now. And I'm like, what's with the obsession? Why can't people in our culture get enough of it? And I, the only explanation I can come up with, I'm open to better ones you may have, but the best one I can come up with is that we are fearful of death. We do hate death instinctually, but the way we deal with it in the flesh is to try to overexpose ourselves to it to try to overcome our fear of it. That we try to desensitize ourselves to it somehow. That's got to be part of it. It's comforting to us to get some insight into the heart of our Lord and to see how much he hates death, even though it's part of his own judgment. Listen to these words. This, I love this description I got from the 19th century scholar B.B. Warfield. He describes this picture, what happened here at the tomb of Lazarus. Listen to the way he describes it. It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. His soul is held by rage as he advances to the tomb. As a champion who prepares for conflict, the raising of Lazarus thus becomes a decisive instance of an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. In flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. That's why Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit as he faced that tomb. That's why earlier in our story we saw that Jesus referred to the death of his disciples as falling asleep. And we read that in scripture, and it is a very scriptural way. That's the way the scriptures, the New Testament particularly, tends to talk about death for believers. It's falling asleep. But don't ever mistake that to think that we are to take death lightly. Or that somehow death has now become our friend. It is never our friend. It is always our enemy. It's a defeated enemy. The reason we fall asleep is because Christ has conquered death through the cross and his empty tomb. That's why we're able to fall asleep to this world when our body gives out and we're waken in the presence of God forever. Death will never be our friend. It will always be our enemy until it is finally destroyed when Jesus Christ comes back again to make all things perfect. So that's the groaning of Jesus. And that's comforting to us that he hates it far more than we do. Secondly, we see his weeping. As he's led to the tomb we get a slightly different nuance to his reaction in verse 35 where it says, profoundly, simply, Jesus wept. It's a different Greek word than what was used to describe Mary's weeping. Mary's weeping was loud, wailing, chaotic. This means he shed some tears. He wept quietly. 
But here, these tears are not based in anger. It's interesting that the mourners interpreted it as an expression of love for Lazarus and loss. They said, see how he loved Lazarus. They're interpreting his tears in light of their own tears and saying he's grieving that Lazarus is gone. Obviously, that's not why Jesus is weeping, because in a few moments, he's going to be reunited with Lazarus. So why is he weeping? Well, I think this is a display of the fact that Jesus was not only experiencing anger at the effects of sin and unbelief and death itself, and he who holds the power of death, he was deeply moved by the suffering of the people who were grieving over the loss of a loved one. He sympathized with them. That word means, the word sympathy literally means to suffer with. He grieved along with them. He wept with those who were weeping because that's what the scriptures say is the righteous thing to do. He sympathized with the grieving people who had lost this precious person in their lives. Remember what Jesus said to Saul when Saul was his enemy, when Saul was on his way to Damascus to throw believers into prison, and maybe even to the point of death, he was persecuting the church. Remember what Jesus said to him after he knocked him off his horse and blinded him? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church. Why are you persecuting me? And that's a powerful expression of the fact that when the church suffers, Christ suffers. Christ sympathizes with his people. That's why Paul would later say that when he suffered in the flesh, he said that he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ on the cross. It is finished, he said. He paid for all of our sins in full, past, present, and future. But he still suffers in a different way as the church suffers. He will continue to sympathize with his suffering people until he comes again to take away suffering once for all. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help time in need. We approach Christ confidently in prayer every day because we know that he sympathizes. He suffers with us, whatever we're going through. You know, parents, that is why kids, when they scrape their knee or when somebody's mean to them, they go running to their mother and not their father because they want somebody that's going to sympathize with them. I'll be the first to admit, I'm a stereotypical father who says, oh, quit your whining, go do your chores. But the mother picks them up, hugs them, sympathizes, suffers with them. And that's instinctually what we want when we're hurting, when we pray, is a Lord who understands far better than we'll ever understand what we're going through. And he cares, and he sympathizes, he loves. But the story doesn't end there. We don't only see the anger of Christ at sin and death and Satan We not only see his weeping over the suffering and grieving of his people, but we see also his boldness and confidence. Jesus steps up to the tomb, and John describes it here for us, and by his description we know that this family was a wealthy family because this is the kind of tomb that a wealthy family had. It was a cave, sometimes carved out of the stone, and there was a cave, and then it had a stone that was put in front of it to hide the body and to... to, squelch the smell 
of decomposition and to keep animals out, quite honestly. And so you had a stone over the entrance. The Jews didn't embalm the dead. That's what the Egyptians did, but the Jews didn't. They just took the dead body and anointed it with oils and perfumes to hopefully hide the smell a little bit, and then they wrapped it in linens, linen cloths. So Jesus steps up to that tomb and he says, take away that stone. And you can really empathize with Martha here, can't you? Because her faith was weak, and we talked about her wavering faith last week. So strong in one moment, but then saying, but wait, Lord. And you can understand, this is your brother, the body of your brother who died four days ago, as she reminds the Lord. You do not want to uncover a body that's been dead and not been embalmed for four days, especially in the hot Middle Eastern culture. She did not want to remember her, the sight of her brother that way. She did not want to remember the stench of her brother that way. Please, Lord, don't do this. It's at this point that Jesus prays publicly. This is one of those rare examples of a public prayer. It's a prayer that's said to the Father, but for the sake of those around him. He's teaching through this prayer. He says he's already prayed, and he already knows that the Father has heard him. But it's that basis for knowing that he's been heard that's what's interesting here. He knows that the Father has heard his request for Lazarus because of the unique relationship that he has with the Father. Remember, he's trying to strengthen the faith of the disciples. That's what this is all about. It's a sign of his power, his nature, and, his, and the gospel, ultimately. And he wants to strengthen the faith of believers. That's the whole purpose of this whole event. And so he prays this prayer and he says, Father, I know you always hear me. And we know already from the Gospel of John why he knows that. Back in chapter 5, he had said, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son. And he goes on to say, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He is the unique, eternal, perfect Son of God in an eternally intimate relationship with the Father, Everything Jesus asks for, the Father does, because they are one. And he says that he acknowledges this relationship in this public prayer, he says, so that they may believe that you sent me. You see, the whole purpose is to strengthen faith. That they would believe that he is the one who is sent to ultimately defeat death once and for all. And then it says he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You've heard about voices that are loud enough to wake the dead. But it's not about the volume. Jesus could have whispered this and Lazarus still would have walked out of the tomb. He spoke with a loud voice because a loud voice is what communicates power and authority. Jesus had the power and authority to speak life into Lazarus' dead body even though he'd been dead for four days. One commentator made the statement I thought found kind of amusing. He said, it's a good thing that Jesus refers to Lazarus by name or else Jesus would have emptied the entire graveyard. And he certainly had the power to do that. But again, his purpose in all of his miracles, as we've seen, was not just to alleviate physical suffering. It was to reveal who he was and what he had come to do. And what a powerful testimony that we who were dead in sins are made alive by the grace of God, by the power of his word and his spirit. Lazarus walks out, I should say he probably stumbled out because, as you remember, he was wrapped up in linens and 
Probably looked a bit like a mummy, although not quite as tightly wound as a mummy. They didn't uh, do that. He was able to move his legs probably, but not very well. And I don't know how he found the opening because John makes it clear he had a cloth over his face. But he stumbles out of the tomb alive and well. One day all of us are going to hear that voice, that powerful, authoritative, commanding voice of Jesus Christ, and we are going to walk out of our tombs. Jesus had already promised this back in chapter 5. Again, this is a sign. It's a miracle is a sign pointing and it's teaching exactly what he had said back in, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or as Paul would later say in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what your trials are. I don't know if you've lost a loved one recently. I don't know if you've got broken relationships that are weighing heavy upon you. I don't know if you've got financial problems that that the faith that you have in the Lord is being tested. Whatever you're going through, when we face trials and suffering and ultimately death itself, it's important that we know that our Savior is not angry with us because the wrath of God has been poured out at the cross and fully satisfied. It is finished. He's not angry with us, but he is angry. He's angry at sin. He's angry at the curse, the effects of sin upon this creation. He's angry at death itself and the one who's behind death. And he weeps with us as we suffer. He sympathizes to a far greater degree than you will ever realize with what you're going through. As you suffer, he suffers with you. And more importantly, he intercedes for you every moment of every day, bold and confident that the Father will answer his prayers because of who he is and what he has done, and he will deliver us. That's the hope that gets us through every trial in life. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This whole passage reminds me of the movie Braveheart, that last rousing speech by William Wallace as he rode his horse in front of the Scottish troops as they wanted to run away from the vastly superior armies of the, that were arrayed against them. Do you remember the last line of his speech was this, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. 
we have that same confidence in the face of death. He may take our physical life, but he'll never take our freedom in Christ. And you know what? One day, we're going to get our body back too. And it's going to be far better than the one that we have now. Because Christ has paid the price, and Christ is risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who fall asleep. Let me close with 1 Corinthians 15, because here's the rallying cry of our Lord. Hear it in the voice of William Wallace if you want. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, no matter what we're facing today, even if it's death itself, we do so confidently, boldly, knowing that you are with us, that you love us and accept us unconditionally, and that you will shepherd us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we will live in your house forever. Thank you for that promise. We can face anything you bring into our path today because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.